right. Hey. How's it going, guys? Hey, could I borrow us? Hey, guess what? This is what you call a bad transition on my part. Hey, I have, a, I have a quick housekeeping thing while we're at it. Why don't we make this less normal than always? Uh, unfortunately, somebody's car lights are on. So I have a license plate for you. And if this is your car, maybe go turn your lights off so you can drive home. The license plate is JNY663. Whoever's going to stand up. This is going to be funny. Yeah, Grant. Is that Grant or is that... That's Logan. Nice. What's up, Logan? Oh, bummer. Okay, we love Logan. Wow. Okay, hey, welcome to Salt Company. So glad you guys are here. Okay, my name's Austin. Hey, nice to meet you. Wow. One day until fall retreat. Stoked. Absolutely stoked. It's going to be a great week. Hey, up until this point, we've been going through the book of Romans called The Road Less Traveled. That's our series that we've been going through. And I'll be honest, it's a quick series, a quick series, and there's a lot in the book of Romans. So here's my challenge for you. Though we have been teaching through some of it, I want to challenge you guys to just like, in your own time, open up the word, read through the whole book of Romans, all 16 chapters. There's good nuggets sweet nuggets, sweet things to gain from God's word, and I think you'd enjoy it. But for tonight, we're going to be in Romans 8. So you can get out your Bibles, turn to Romans 8 right now. We're going to be walking through verse 31 through 39 together. And as I'm in, you know, preparing this, thinking through this text, uh, it made me think of when I was a little kid, my dad actually got his pilot's license. How cool is that? Pretty epic. A dad with a pilot's license. So he went through training, went through um, classes to make sure he could log the right amount of flight hours. And there was this one time when I was in elementary school, and it was a weekend. My dad wanted to take me and my sister. My younger brother was too little at this time, so it was just me and my sister. But I got to actually go fly with my dad. My dad was going to fly us in a plane. That's awesome. And... So it was a weekend, clear skies, awesome. I don't remember many things, honestly, about this trip that my dad would fly me and my sister, but I do remember a couple things. One was at the time, my dad was rocking a goatee and big glasses. Looked nice, looked really good, looked like a classic pilot. The other thing that I remember about this time was the maneuvers that my dad did. So at one point, we were, I mean, kind of just like flying easy, flying, cruising in this little prop plane. That means it had a propeller. And we were flying nice, easy. It was smooth. But then my dad turns back and he says, all right, are you ready? We're going to do, do some maneuvers. And I didn't know what maneuvers meant. I was young, but I imagined they were going to be kind of exciting. And so we start doing these things where the plane is not just going straight. It is now kind of turning more and going up, going down. It was quite fascinating. And then he said, all right, we're going to do a stall. I don't know if you guys know what a stall is, but this is when the plane, you shut off the engine, and you start going down a little bit. It's kind of scary. And then you turn the plane back on, and then you pull up and get cruising again. Okay, I thought this was epic. 
I thought this was just like the coolest thing. I was like looking out the window like, oh, we're, good. we're flying. This is amazing. My sister, I like look over at my sister, and she's just not doing good, honestly. She's not looking great. And, but I'm trying to enjoy the plane ride, so I'm looking out the window, enjoying it. But then I hear just from my left ear, the desperation cry, you know, just like that last little thing you say right before it's about to go south, the, dad, I don't feel so good. She said that, and then I knew, I was like, no, this is not going to end well. And so (laughs) then I turn to my left, and I see puke just spewing at me. It's absolutely nasty. Because I don't know why, but she like turned her head at me when she wanted to throw up. I don't get it. Oh, my goodness. It was a crazy moment. So I don't know if anybody else can say that they've thrown up on an airplane. I hope it never happens to you. But I also hope it never happens where you get somebody else's puke on you. It was absolutely disgusting. Uh, From that day forward, I can say for sure I did not like Hamburger Helper because I saw all of it just... If you ever look at Hamburger Helper after seeing that happen, you will never eat it again. I promise you. Oh, my goodness. It was disgusting. Okay, it's, it's a, a bummer to expose my sister that way, but honestly, her body just, like, couldn't handle all, like, the tosses and the turns of the plane ride, right? She was just, like, about to lose it, just, like, about to lose it. Have you ever felt like that? Not necessarily in a plane sense, but just, like, in life, like, feeling like the tosses and the turns are, like, throwing you this way and that way, and you're just, like, unsettled, unsettled, like about to spew, about to, you just can't take it anymore, honestly. You feel like, man, really didn't see that turn coming, really didn't see that one coming. And so there's this like narrative that you're telling yourself, like thoughts in your head that are just like smacking you left and right, and you just like don't feel happy, don't feel joyful, not sure what's going to like chew you back up, not sure what's going to get you through the rest of the ride. That's where I want to go tonight. To like go alongside with you and say, hey, there are like stuff that we tell ourselves that just kills our joy. Things that we say to ourselves that honestly just don't help us walk the path with Jesus. But they're real. We feel them. So I want to go there with you guys tonight. We're going to talk through five thoughts that kill joy. Five thoughts that kill your joy. Five thoughts that if they keep up, man, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the rest of the day. So, thought number one that kills our joy. Everyone is against me. Have you ever thought about that? Like everybody, man, it feels like everybody is against me. Maybe this is something that you're coming in tonight feeling like there's this kind of cloud over your head like the lens over your eyes thinking that man people around you just like finding a reason to leave to not hang out to separate relationship with you distrust disappointment because it seems like everybody is trying to find reasons to be against you Or maybe you're doing just fine with, like, the relationships around you, but there's this spiritual weight that maybe temptation to sin is getting more than usual. Or you feel like, man, it's more prominent, it's more difficult to say no to sin, 
And it just like feels like you know what you should do, but you don't do that thing. You know what you shouldn't do, but you wind up doing that thing. It's a power against you. You feel like everybody's against you. And honestly, the reality is that some things actually actually are against you. Something actually is against you because there's evil in our world. We live in a fallen, broken world where there are active beings set up against you. The persecuting world that doesn't know Jesus. Christians all around the world being killed for their faith, their association with him. It's what happened to Paul, the writer of Romans. It's what's happening in other parts of the world right now. The flesh, your sinful desires against you, default setting against God, our default setting against God. He's always worthy of more than we give him. He's always deserving of more attention than we give him. He's always more desirable than I acknowledge. Our flesh is set up against us. And the devil, the evil one, against you. He hates God and wants you to hate God too. In a very real way, things aren't as they should be. Things aren't as they should be. There's division and death, disease and decay because there is evil in our world. So, of course, it makes sense why we could let the thought, man, everybody's against me, wage war in our minds. But check this out. I want to go to Romans and see how Paul is actually going to present questions for us in the midst of our wondering, in the midst of our thoughts, to be able to actually fight back against our patterns of thinking. Questions that are going to fight back against the joy killing and give us a way forward. So if you want to turn with me, Romans 8, we're going to start in verse 31 where Paul poses the first question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, there's this massively important piece there. If God is for us. It shapes everything because it's pretty obvious that there are things that are actually stacked against us. So if Paul is saying here, if God's for us, who can be against us? We could actually answer that question by saying, man, there's a lot of things against us. The world, the flesh, the devil, we feel like things are actually against us. So what is he actually saying? It's a perspective shift that God is for you. Since God is for you if you're in Christ, that you are no longer enemies with God. That you've actually been transferred to God's team. you like entered the transfer portal and gotten put on the championship team just by faith in Jesus. You've been brought onto the same team as the maker of the heavens. And he is ultimate. He is above all things. He is in all things. And so if he's on your team, who could be against you? Have you ever played uh, like a board game against a little kid who's kind of like making up their own rules? Oh, my goodness. Don't ever think that you're going to win against a little kid who makes up their own rules on top of it. They always come up with this little secret sauce where if you're playing sorry, every time they roll a four, they just win. So that's the end of the game. You're, you, they won. 
impossible to match up against a maker of a game like that. In the same way, it is impossible for anybody to match up against the maker of the universe. He is ultimate. He is ultimate, and he is on our side, those of us that are in Christ. And so we can rest assured that we have ultimate victory in him. Okay, this is what this means for us in a practical sense. For the believers, we won't be immune to enemies. We won't be even immune to the thought that there are things against us. But we have ultimate assurance that we do have victory in Christ. So we can walk in confidence and keep fighting the good fight, knowing that there is ultimate victory. And to the unbeliever, the only way to join the team of God is just to trust him. So would you trust him? Would you believe that it's a good thing to be on his team? You don't have to figure everything out first, but trust him. There is joy in the victory of God. He's for you. But thought number two, that kills our joy. I'll never have enough. I'll never have enough. Have any of you ever felt just like behind compared to everybody else around you? Like everybody else doing big stuff, like seeing sweet things, going cool places, succeeding in ways that you just feel like you're kind of tagging along in the back. Always a little discontent with what you've got. I wonder if, just like the way that we're living, the little things that we're doing each day are just like training ourselves for discontentment. Like maybe we're developing habits of jealousy and comparison through unsuspecting, unsuspecting patterns of life. You ever think about why Instagram added a marketplace feature to their app? They were just capitalizing on the already pervasive pattern where when we see things that we don't yet have, but they look nice and glamorous, we say, ooh, I want that. Ooh, maybe if I just had that. That one will satisfy. That one will be good. Got to have it. Got to have it. The once I have that mindset will always kill your joy because you're actually not enjoying anything. It's always about the next. It's always what about what I don't have. I'll never have enough. And Paul's question for us in this thought is verse 32. He says, who did, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is giver. It's in his character to give of himself and provide for his people. And Paul knows how fickle we are, like how likely we are to change. He knows how fast we are to doubt the provision of God and how quick we are to move on from enjoying him and enjoying the things that he's given. That's just this base tendency that we want what we don't have. The grass always greener on the other side. But with the question that Paul poses, he's trying to remind us that God did the unthinkable thing. God did an upside down thing. He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. He's the one that will give us all things. He gave something up. The creator of the universe emptied himself so that we would be filled. It's unthinkable. It's upside down. But it is love. There's a quote by a man named Octavius Winslow. Sounds like a made-up name. I don't know. Amazing name. Octavius Winslow. He's talking about even just the process of Jesus going to the cross to be delivered for our sins, to be a payment for us. And he's talking about who gave Jesus up to die. This is what the quote says. Who delivered up Jesus to die? It wasn't Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but it was the Father for love. The cross of Christ is evidence of the continual unfailing generosity of God, that God would give himself so that we would be able to enjoy him. He did not even spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Love was costly, but God paid the price so that we would graciously have all things. So what does this mean for us? The point of God's provision is not so that we would focus and dwell on the gifts that we receive from him, but that we would be directed to thank the giver himself. The greatest gift that he's ever given to us was his presence. Not presence like multiple gifts, but his presence. It sounds the same. Presence. Him being knowable. Him being with us. That's the greatest gift that God's given us. And it takes practice. But that's where joy is. Enjoying time with God. Enjoying his very being. For me, I like to, uh, I like to go on walks. I like to go on walks outside and look at trees and look at the sky. And honestly, just tell God, like, hey, I think you're awesome Thank you for creating things. And I'll ask him, I'll say, hey, would you help me to be more like you? Would you help me to see you in more ways? But ultimately, I'm loving just the fact that God is with me. And loving the fact that God wants to be with me. So would you practice that? Would you go on a walk and look at trees and see God's careful hand in all things and believe that he wants to provide for you too? There is joy in the presence of God. He loves you. Thought number three that kills your joy because maybe you're less concerned about what you'll have or what you won't have, but you're more concerned about what you will become. Thought number three that kills your joy, I'll never be enough. I'll never be enough. Have you ever felt this way? I have. Like all your effort going in one direction, all your, all your motivation, striving, and work, going for a place to prove your name, to kind of show everybody that, that you're good enough, that you can finally do something right, just trying to earn a nice pat on the back. You're just trying to succeed in this way, trying to earn approval in this way, trying to make it on the podium so that you would finally receive a trophy that says, hey, nice job. 
Nice job. You want to receive this trophy and wind up in the podium. But you're starting to realize that more often than not, this situation that you imagine yourself in is in a courtroom where you're not given a trophy for your good works, but a sentence for all the ways that you've messed up. Guilty. Didn't measure up to your standards once again. Guilty. Not quite good enough this time. Guilty. Didn't uphold your word there. I'll never be enough. Look what Paul poses as a question for us to give us a way forward. This is verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That is a people that he's chosen. It is God who justifies. It's God who justifies. If you're united with Christ, then in the highest court of heaven, there is no accusation against you that can stick. There's no accusation against you that can stick. God is the righteous judge, and Jesus is our heavenly advocate. So God has justified us by taking all the things, all the ways that we didn't measure up, all the broken things that we did, all of our times where we had heart posture that was bent against God, he has taken all those things and placed them on Jesus. He took your place in the judgment seat. That's what happened at Calvary. Your slate now is clean. Your sentence has been paid. You are free from the accusations, and the charge against you has actually been lifted. There's no accusation that holds eternal weight against you. Okay, if that's true, then why do we hold, we let like hold, we let accusations hold such authority in our lives? I think one of the reasons, honestly, is because some of us just aren't quite used to it yet. We're like not quite used to the fact that we're free from our sin now, that Jesus has actually paid it in full. Like for our whole life, up until recently, we've been the ones that have to be accountable for our mistakes. And so we've got all these broken promises, broken relationships, ways that we didn't follow through. And we're like stuffing them in our pockets, carrying the weight by ourselves. That's our existence up until recently. And now we've actually, we've actually found freedom and forgiveness in Jesus. And so it's not us as bearing the consequences from those decisions. It's actually we can freely give them to Jesus. But then we catch ourselves every once in a while living in this old reality, right? Because we're so used to this this idea that we've had to bear the weight of our wrong decisions. We're free, but we just don't realize it yet. We're not just not used to it yet. And this made me think of what it might have been like to be released from prison after like maybe you were in prison for like a decade, 10 years. You're eating, drinking, breathing that environment. That's the very life that you're used to. The pattern of life is ingrained in you. But now your sentence is cleared, right? 
Your sentence is cleared, so you're released from prison. You're free to go. Now you can go to birthday parties. You can go eat tacos on Tuesday nights with your friends. You can get a job, live a normal life. You're out of that old lifestyle. But then you catch yourself and you realize that you're wearing your prison clothes to a birthday party. That doesn't make sense. You're free. So your friends are looking at you like, bro, take the chains off. You've been released. You don't have to live there anymore. Your sentence has been paid. Take the prison clothes off. That's what I'm asking you guys to do tonight. There's another reminder that in Christ, you are not who you used to be. Even if you're not used to it yet, you can throw off the old accusations. They don't have a place in your life anymore. Christ has truly set you free from your sin. You don't have to wear your prison clothes anymore. There is joy in the forgiveness of God. He has set you free. But you ever think, what if God can't actually fix the mess that I've made? What if there's like no hope for my messed up state? What if I created such a messy situation that is too crazy for it to actually work out? Like I keep sinning. I keep doing things I hate. I'm not sure I'm even saved anymore. There's no hope. You shouldn't waste your breath telling me about the redemption of God. Our hearts condemn us. And Paul poses a question in verse 34 for us. He says, Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. Guys, this is one of my favorite realities to dwell on. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God in glory. And at God's right hand. This is so cool. Jesus is interceding for his followers. He's interceding for his followers. This is basically what that means. The intercession is continually securing on our behalf the benefits of his sacrifice. Continually securing the benefits of his sacrifice. What did his sacrifice do? It paid for our sin. He took the penalty on himself so that we would be free to approach him. We would be free to have relationship with God. And Jesus, at all times, is continually reminding the Father that we've been paid for. He's interceding for us. God the Son sees you in all your mess and says, that one's mine. He sees you in the messed up junk of your life. And in that moment, looks down and says, I love that one. I paid for that one. They're mine. And so what flows from the heavenly places is only grace and love 
It's the active love of Christ that is a mind-blowing thing. He loves you right now. He loved you this week in that thing when you knew you shouldn't be doing that thing. In that moment, he was looking down on you and saying, I love you. He was reminding the Father, that one's mine. You're not too far gone. So yes, it's not in approval of sin, but in love and compassion that God looks on you and says, I love you. The same way, like a loving father would look on his sick kid. Love, compassion, and desire for life. There is joy in knowing the active love of Christ. He chooses you. Okay, so we've been walking this stairs, this staircase of joy-killing thoughts, and Paul's presented questions for us to rethink, questions for us to redirect our attention to a world where a loving Father cares for us in the midst of all of it. And there's one more thought that I think often kills our joy. It's the climax of the journey tonight. It's more than God not fighting for us. It's more than God not providing for us. It's more than him judging us or condemning us. I think the ultimate thought to kill our joy is that God isn't here at all. That God isn't here at all, that he's left. That he doesn't really care to work in my life or doesn't see value in stepping in to help. And we let this thought come because of what we're experiencing in a certain moment. Like we start telling ourselves, look around. Isn't it obvious that God's not here? Isn't it clear that he's not present in this situation? Isn't it obvious that he's left me? Paul knows this thought. Paul knows this thought. So let's look at that verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Am I separated from the love of God? When persecution comes, am I separated from the love of God? When distress, when all my troubles Overwhelm me. Am I separated from the love of God? Why else would my mom get cancer? Why else would my best friend take his own life? Why else would my parents get divorced? Why else would I get fired from my job? Why else would my boyfriend, girlfriend break up with me? Am I separated from the love of God? Isn't he here? Or to take it a step further, why would God let me take punishment for associating with him? Being persecuted for the sake of Christ. The audience that Paul was writing to would know the risk on a new level of identifying with Christ. Verse 36 shows this, 
as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. They were living in a world that we don't quite understand as American Christians, of a, a church that was persecuted, being literally killed all the day long. And even in that, they're asking the question, where is God? How can we find joy? How can we actually find the presence of God if that is our reality? Have I been separated from the love of God? And verse 37, Paul comes in with the most emphatic, no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how powerful the love of God is. This is how fierce the love of God is. This is how tight of a grasp he has on your life. That no matter what, you can have confidence that he will never let you go. And when suffering comes, we know that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus Christ proved his love for us through suffering. So when suffering comes for us, we know that it cannot possibly separate us from him, but it would actually join us to him a little bit closer. Sharing in the suffering of Christ can now be seen as evidence of union with him as the crucified one, not cause for us to doubt it, not cause for us to doubt his very love. Jesus himself said to his disciples in John chapter 16, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Peace through tribulation. How? How? It's confidence that even if the worst thing happens, God will not let you go. Even if you get cancer, God will not let you go. Even if you have a career-ending injury, God will not let you go. Even if you don't graduate college, God will not let you go. Even if you break that promise again, God will not let you go. Even if you lie to their face again, even if they spit in your face because you love Jesus, God will not let you go. Even if, fill in the blank, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ revealed through Christ Jesus. There is joy in the security of your salvation. God will never let you go. You see, our confidence cannot be in our love for him because that love will change through the seasons. But our confidence is in his great love for us, his unending, everlasting, and unchanging love. That's where joy is found. That's where joy is found. You guys remember the story about the plane with my sister, Puke? 
gross. Okay, here's what I love to think about that story. There was chaos, there was tosses and turns, and an inability to handle it by ourselves, right? The maneuvers were wild, the sister was spewing all over the place, and all seemed hectic and out of control. But what was true in that situation? It was our father that was flying the plane. He was in control the whole time. And he was taking us on this ride to prove his love for us. He was in control the whole time. Guys, life is messy, full of turns, full of turns that we won't expect. But our Heavenly Father is flying the plane. He's in control. And he works all things for our good and for his glory. So would you trust him? Let's pray. God, you're here right now. Help us to acknowledge your presence even now. God, sometimes we're just really good at self-talking and telling us all the things that we're not excited about, worried about. But I pray that you would just help us to see you in all things. God, give us joy in your victory. Thank you for being for us. Give us joy in your presence, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Give us joy in your forgiveness. God, thank you for setting us free in Christ Jesus. There's joy in knowing your active love, God. You're loving us right now. Thank you, Lord. And give us joy in the security of our salvation, Lord, that you'll never let us go. Thank you so much that your grip on us is tighter than our ability to even think. Thank you that it's not up to us, Lord, but we can sing in confidence that you're the one holding on to us, God. So I pray that tonight you would get praise. Would you stir worship in our heart now? Would we stand and sing to a God that's worthy of praise? God, we love you. Pray this all in your name. Amen.